What's up, everybody? I'm Billy Ryan, and you are listening to the No One Is Watching podcast, where we explore leadership, culture, and the impact they have on high-performing teams. We can all admire the championships that are won on the field and the big profits that show up on the balance sheet. But this show is dedicated to the premise that those battles are won long before they start. Through conversations with elite performers and leaders in the world of business, sports, and life in general, we'll learn valuable lessons on how you can optimize yourself and your organization. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Miller, Chief Operating Officer of the Minnesota Vikings. In addition to discussing Andrew's unique experience as an executive in both the NFL and MLB, we touch on the roles listening, vulnerability, and empowerment play in leadership. We also talk about how cool it is to hear that horn blow and the skull chant before Vikings games. Well, Andrew, thanks for uh, joining today, man. I'm excited to catch up. It's been a little while. Absolutely. It's great to see you, Billy. Great to see you as well. So, uh, you did you grow up? I know you went to college in California. Did you grow up on the West Coast? I grew up in Southern California, in Riverside, California. Okay, so you grew up in Southern California, and then uh, stops have included, I believe, Northwestern, um, Toronto, Cleveland, and now Minnesota. So you are you're not a fan of the sunshine and, and the warmth, right? You've escaped <laughs> it and are never going back. Yeah, I'm I'm working on almost 20 years of, of winter at this point. Uh, and <laughs> I, I have adjusted. I actually got asked about that this morning of how, how I've adjusted. And uh, you know what? Um, I think each place is different. We, we've loved uh, Chicago, Cleveland, Toronto, and now Minnesota. And I, I think the thing I've learned about the winter is uh, even as cold as Minnesota can get, you can put on more layers and, and keep enjoying being outside. But when it's hot, when it's you know desert hot in Southern California or Phoenix or somewhere, it, it's really hard to escape it. Yeah, there's only so many clothes you can legally take off. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I did I did a, a stint in Phoenix and we loved it, but uh, yeah, I mean they say it's like a it's a dry heat, but so's an oven, so it's it's pretty steamy. Yeah. Uh, so uh, how are you? I, I tell you, what, I did I did a uh, I think I've only been in Minnesota once, and it was in the summer, but it was beautiful. Uh, yeah. Absolutely beautiful. You enjoying your time there? Absolutely. Minnesota is absolutely incredible place to live. And, uh, you know, people who we knew here, uh, who some of whom we had overlapped in, in Cleveland or Chicago or other places, essentially told us, you know, if you liked Cleveland, the neighborhoods, the schools, you know, the, the pace of life, uh, you know, Minnesota, you know, the Twin Cities, we live in Minneapolis, uh, is very similar. It's just twice as big. And, uh, you know, Chicago, Toronto, places like that it has all the big city uh, things that those places have. It's just not as big and it's sort of the perfect happy medium. It's a great place to raise a family, a great place to live. Yeah. So tell me about your, uh, your role now, COO of the Vikings. You're overseeing obviously the entire business operations side of the house. Is that right? Yeah. So I'm the chief operating officer of the, the Vikings. And that means I oversee the business operations of the team. Um, you know, not, too dissimilar from the roles I had in, in Toronto most recently, or as uh, EVP of business operations at the Blue Jays. Um, so for most uh, sports teams, there's some split between the sports operations, whether it's baseball operations, football operations, basketball operations, and that's a lot that goes into the team side, scouting, which you obviously did, uh, you know, player development, um, you know, contract negotiations, again, which I know you have experience in, um, you know, everything that puts the team on the field, 
uh, is more on the support operation and, and the business operations are things that are, are more you know commonly associated with other businesses things like finance and HR and sales and marketing and IT and those types of functions are, are pretty common in the business operations of sports teams yeah it's funny I've talked to um, a few other folks about just the lack of awareness like the general public or when they think of the Minnesota Vikings or the Cleveland Indians, they think of, you know, the players in uniform on the field and sort of what they can see on TV and, and don't really uh, recognize or, or can appreciate the, the massive machine and the amount of people that are working behind the scenes to make that organization run every day. And so you're one of the few guys that I've, that I've known personally that has been on both sides of that ledger, right? You started on the baseball operations side of things and then eventually migrated over um, to more of the business side. Was that something that was intentional on your end or did it just sort of happen? Well, my goal, um, so I, I mean, I grew up in Southern California, like I said, and uh, always loved sports, loved playing sports, you know, soccer, baseball, basketball, you know, was fortunate to walk on to the Cal baseball team uh, as a left-handed pitcher. So, you know, sports, but especially baseball was always something I was really passionate about. Uh, I'd always wanted to, uh, once I realized I, I couldn't play baseball professionally, uh, you know, I, I wanted to figure out a way to, to work in the game. And, um, you know, I, I took a detour when I graduated from, uh, from Berkeley. I ended up going to Wall Street and working for six or seven years in investment banking and venture capital. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, went through the dot-com boom and the bust uh, and found my way to Northwestern for grad school. Uh, where I did a JD MBA there. And my, my idea was not to get into sports at that time. My idea was um, that I really needed to, to go back to grad school. I was at a point in my career where uh, it was important for me to, to round out my education, uh, to end up you know, probably more likely in a more established uh, you know, firm or industry, uh, either back in California in technology or private equity, uh, which I had a little bit of background in. It was my first year of law school that I really started thinking about sports and in particular baseball. Um, Moneyball, the book had come out. I read it. I realized that uh, when I was interning for the Oakland A's in college, that that was literally happening down the hallway from me. And I just I didn't know. And it was a, it painted a very different picture than uh, what I had seen in, in you know one semester, a day a week uh, in their front offices. And I just thought maybe the world's changed in six or seven years. And. Uh, it's either an industry I'm going to be more interested in or my background's a better fit for uh, and that I would really enjoy. Uh, and I had three years. And at that point, it felt like a lifetime where I didn't need a job for three years. And so it, it didn't seem like much of a risk to explore and to talk to people in the game and to learn what people's roles were. And uh, I definitely, as you said, I, I gravitated towards the baseball operations side. I want to be a general manager. I want to run uh, you know, baseball operations and you know, I was really fortunate. Um, you know, I got hired by uh, Mark Shapiro, Chris Antonetti, Mike Chernoff uh, in the Cleveland, you know, now Guardians uh, front office uh, as an intern between my second and third year of Northwestern, uh, really focused on salary arbitration and, um, you know, things tied to the major league team contract negotiations and uh, valuation of, of player contracts. Um, and I loved it. Um, you know, they brought me back full time after I graduated in 07. Uh, and that was the dream. You know, I, I was in the absolute perfect place. Uh, you know, you and I overlapped in Cleveland. Uh, it was the right people, place, culture, leadership. Uh, it was something that 
I, I would have wanted to be focused on whether it was in sports or law or consulting or, or you know, private equity or some other firm that, you know, Mark and Chris and Mike and Derek Falvey and Ross Atkins and all the great people that we got to work with uh, just made it a special place. And so once I got there, I, I was really enjoying my work, uh, you know, enjoying being in baseball operations and really had no interest in switching to the business side. So, um, you know, when, you know, you asked the question of, um, you know, was that intentional? It, it really wasn't. I, I was happy with what I was doing. I was focused on continuing to grow and frankly, continuing to help us, you know, try and win. And uh, Mark Shapiro started his transition uh, to team president. And, um, you know, when he was going to become team president, he was going to oversee business operations and baseball operations, which wasn't too common at the time. And, uh, you know, his vision was that uh, if we operated our, our business you know, using the same types of core principles and values and uh, focus areas as our baseball operations, it gave, gave us even better a chance to win in, in a small market like Cleveland. So, um, you know, at first, you know, he asked me to, to consider switching over to the business side with him. And it was an extremely difficult decision for me because I was in the exact type of role I wanted to be in and, uh, you know, very well situated for continued growth and um, didn't really know where the, you know, the business side would take me. Um, so ultimately, I switched for, for two reasons. One, uh, as you said, almost no one gets to work on both sides of the industry. It's very rare. Uh, I didn't really know uh, many other people who had done that. So I just thought this is an industry I'm very passionate about. I'm very interested about. Uh, I'll learn something that will be unique. And I, I don't know where that will take me, but uh, it'll be interesting. And then second and, and much more important, we were such a talented front office on the baseball side of things. You know, all the people I mentioned, uh, you know, some other people, David Stearns, who I know you've had on this show and um, Carter Hawkins, now the GM of the Cubs and, uh, you know, Neil Huntington was there with us at first and, you know, became the, the Pirates GM, like really, really talented group of people. Uh, and I just thought, you know, not that I wasn't contributing and not that we weren't improving in baseball operations, but I thought maybe if my goal is to win the World Series, I can have more of an impact by helping transform the business side. And so that's really why I switched. That's interesting. That's interesting. It's, that's pretty good. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it was an impressive oppressive roster of folks that, that they had in Cleveland at the time. And, and, um, in, in a similar journey for me, I was, when we crossed paths, I was there as an area scout, um, living in Atlanta and had an opportunity to go to the commissioner's office from, from there. And on paper, it was like the no brainer, right career move, uh, decision. And I agonized over it for all the reasons you just talked about the people that were there in the culture and, uh, and Scott Barnsby, who was my cross checker at the time, who's still there as the scouting director. Now, um, I was wearing him out, just calling him like every other day, trying to like, uh, work through it on my end, because uh, I shared the same sentiment, really appreciated the environment that I was in that, uh, the, the culture that had been created, the, the investment that they'd showed in their people. And, and look, I was, I was an area scout who had very sporadic sort of face-to-face -face time with, with the group that you just mentioned, but it was, it was palpable to me too, but that awareness on your end to sort of take a step back and say, I want to win. And this may be a different way for me to do it. Um, that's interesting. That's, a, that's, that's, that's cool to hear. Yeah. Um, Baseball. Um, and this was part of Mark's vision, but, you know, as you know, um, you know, especially in, in your roles 
um, Cleveland, Atlanta, you know, Arizona, the, but especially the commissioner's office, right? Uh, baseball economics are, are really structured where, you know, the majority of revenue is local and there's no salary cap. So, you know, teams that are in smaller markets, you need to find creative uh, ways to have competitive advantages. And, you know, that when, when you think about something like, you know, Moneyball, which is, you know, become such a, you know, kind of popular uh, item, you know, from the movie and the book, um, that was a lot about finding those competitive advantages on the baseball side of things, you know, player contracts and uh, evaluating uh, statistically, um, you know, players. But, you know, from a business standpoint, um, it's also important to find those advantages and find ways to engage fans and, um, you know, build your brand and, and have people want to spend their time, you know, around your team, you know, focusing on the, the games and the content. And all that does, you know, eventually, you know, is uh, create uh, incremental revenue for the, the team to use towards the players. And so if you're looking to find advantages to, to win, you, you need to find them in every facet of your organization. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great example of, of, um, sort of embracing the chair that you're in at the time and, and maximizing your contributions there. Uh, because that's one that, uh, myself included, when you get in, you, you, you have, I had, a, I know a very narrow view of what I wanted to do and what roles I wanted to be in eventually. And so, uh, probably to my own detriment, you know, honestly, it narrowed my path so much. So, to be able to, you know, obviously you gained that in your time and sort of getting that that perspective on it um, once you saw how it all operated. But yeah, I mean, small market clubs in particular, it's such an important thing to be able to tie the business and the baseball side or baseball, you know, business and player side of, of the operations. It's not unique to baseball. Um, it's maybe just a little bit more palpable because of the lack of a salary cap. So um, you, you talked about the, all of that big part of the funnel winding up, um, as revenue to direct toward players, right? Because at the end of the day, the game is about the players and um, that's what's by and large going to determine the wins and the losses. And so I know that um, we chatted a, a few weeks back that you, um, the Vikings recently were um, sort of recognized as the number one organization in the NFL as far as the NFLPA player satisfaction report. And that's something you're proud of. And uh, it's a pretty... It's a, it's a pretty big deal. I don't think people can probably appreciate how important that is uh, in the era of salary cap, in the era of free agency, in the era of, um, you know, players uh, uh, getting some say over where they want to play and when they want to play their times. Can you talk a little bit about what that means for, for you personally, for the organization and kind of the process that led to it? Yeah, I mean, it's something that we're extremely proud of at the Vikings that, um, you know, the NFL Players Association, uh, you know, conducted a survey on a number of different facets um, of player experience, and we ended up getting the, the top grade in the league. Um, and frankly, a A's across the board in, in all the facets. So it's something we're extremely proud of. Um, and as you know, uh, culture matters a lot. And, um, you know, it it's really starts uh, from the top. You know, our ownership group, uh, the Wilfs are absolutely incredible owners. And um, it's a testament to the investments they've made in in resources, facilities, um, staffing, um, you know, equipment, technology, all the things that go into providing that, um, you know, atmosphere and that environment for players. Um, and most particularly, uh, you know, hiring people that care deeply about uh, providing players 
the experience that they need to to be positive. And um, you know, it takes a lot to to win in sports. And um, you know, having an environment where you know players feel like they can come in and, and be positive and uh, get the work in that they need to to do to prepare to be uh, out on the field, you know, healthy and ready to go on Sundays or in baseball, you know, 162 games. Um, that makes a difference. And um, for us, um, it's a testament to people across the organization in many, many different roles, whether it's athletic trainers, uh, you know, strength and conditioning, uh, football coaching, uh, communications team, um, you know, a number of people that uh, are involved day in and day out with players that uh, make it a, a special place to, to work. Did you directly solicit any feedback from from players, or was it more crowdsourcing from a lot of those a lot of those staff members you just touched on and their experiences? Yeah, I mean, so the the survey was conducted by the players' association, so that e- even more of a testament that this wasn't uh, you know a self directed uh, employee engagement survey that that we ran or that the NFL ran, right? This is something that the players themselves. Uh, you know, conducted and it turned out that they were, they were positive. So, you know, so we sorry, got, I meant more the, um, your process in, in creating that kind of culture, right. And, and, and the steps that you were taking and prioritizing certain initiatives or what have you was there uh, in order to, in order obviously to get to that ranking, were, was there player feedback or suggestions on things that matter to them that you stressed across the organization? Got it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, we're also at a different juncture because, you know, a year ago we we hired a new general manager in Quasi Adolfo Mensa and a new head coach in, in Kevin O'Connell uh, and brought in, you know, almost entirely new uh, coaching staff, um, you know, some new uh, people in, you know, high performance and athletic training. And so there's, there's actually quite a, a number of uh, new people, you know, meshed with a lot of really talented, experienced, you know, veteran people here from the Vikings. So, um, you know, definitely got some player feedback along the way, but um, I think a lot of uh, the focus for us is on um, culture and on the values that uh, we want to uphold, uh, that we want to represent as an organization and making sure that, um, you know, we're looking for that in our hiring process, uh, in performance reviews and, and how we're, you know, conducting uh, our day-to-day operations that, you know, culture is a lot about the behavior you accept and the behavior you don't accept. And so making sure that uh, when we are, are thinking about who's in our building, that every single person matters to what we're trying to achieve uh, and that, you know, we're, we're all trying to uphold those values. It's funny. I, I, I literally define culture the exact same way just like two days ago in some of this time. When I was talking to me about it because it's it's a little bit of a nebulous term it can get kind of tossed around and and i think watered down because it gets overused um but the good ones are are palpable and you know when you're a part of a good one you also know when you're part of a a, a toxic one or a, or a lacking one um but how do you go about assessing for that across the whole organization because if you're hiring somebody in a junior sales role versus hiring someone on the high performance team that's going to be interacting directly with the players every day they're coming from two very different worlds, uh, but all have to fit within sort of that cultural paradigm that you've prioritized. How do you go about doing that at the Vikings? Yeah, well, I mean, a year ago when we hired Quasi and Kevin, 
um, you know, we, we're at an inflection point, right? I mean, you, you've been a part of teams that have been very good in, in, in one uh, and teams that have been, you know, not, not as good uh, and, and didn't win as much. And, um, you know, when, when you're not winning, um, it, it's really tough and it can be, become negative. And, you know, we were at a point where uh, we had missed the playoffs two years in a row. Um, you know, we, we made a change with our head coach and, and general manager, and um, that's always a, a really difficult time, as you know. Uh, a, a lot of people, um, you know, are understandably uh, anxious when there's, you know, leadership change um, because it can mean change across a number of different roles within an organization. Um, you know, we were also at a pretty low point, you know, from, um, you know, an internal morale standpoint, um, you know, COVID had been uh, a, a long grind, uh, you know, from uh, an organizational perspective. 2020, we had no fans in our building. Um, you know, we, we were mostly uh, separated, uh, you know, to adhere to NFL protocols and, and make, make sure that we're all staying healthy and safe. But, you know, our business operations team had been working remotely for most of two years, um, even, you know, coming into games and uh, coming in when absolutely necessary uh, to the building. But, you know, we were pretty strict in terms of the number of people that could be in the building. We, we share a space. All of our football and business operations are together. So, um, you know, in addition to, you know, kind of where we were uh, from a team perspective, you know, our, our building had lost that connection, I think, with each other to some extent, uh, which I think is pretty natural if you haven't really spent a lot of time together over a two year period. So all the things that people love about working in sports and the passion and the energy and the excitement uh, and the adrenaline, um, you, you're kind of losing in, in some of that uh, over the course of that time. So we were at a pretty low point. And, you know, I think when we hired Quasi and Kevin, um, we decided to take a step back and say, this is the time for us to reassess who we want to be as an organization, what we're trying to achieve, what's our mission, why are we here, uh, who do we want to be. And so we went through an organization-wide uh, process of uh, redeveloping our mission and values over a number of months. It was very collaborative. Every single person in the organization uh, had an opportunity to weigh in, whether it was in focus groups or surveys uh, or providing just direct feedback. Um, and so when we put those values on the board, when we say that our mission is to advance the Vikings legacy through the passion and pursuit of excellence, that every single one of us has bought into the, these are the words that we're going to try and uphold, um, you know, from a more like tactical standpoint, uh, that can come in the hiring process. You know, we're literally interviewing people right before I got on uh, this, you know, podcast with you, uh, conducting interviews, and you know, we're looking at if if we have uh, five values that we're trying to uphold, right? We're trying to put the team first. You know, we're trying to seek to learn. We're trying to uh, commit to an environment that's diverse, equitable, and inclusive. We're trying to uphold uh, and exhibit high character. And we're trying to strive to achieve. Ultimately, we want to win. If those are the five things that matter to our values, well, how do we assess those in an interview process? How do we ensure that uh, we're each upholding them every day? Uh, and, and how do we make sure that uh, that comes out in the way we uh, engage with our, our fans, our players, uh, our clients, and any other stakeholders that we have? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I imagine the the feedback you got and the buy-in you got from from your staff across the entire organization 
was obviously shaped by COVID. And I would imagine you probably got uh, some more substantive engagement because of COVID. I mean, just I, we're all in our houses with a lot more time in our hands, uh, a lot more introspection, a lot more reflection, and, and you start realizing what is important to you. And, and by and large, people that, that work in sports want to be part of a team. They want to compete. They want to um, be part of something bigger than themselves. And um, when that, to your point, when it's taken away from you and it's like sort of this sterile, you could be working anywhere, like for any type of organization at that point, it kind of felt different. Uh, it probably, I'm sure it energized people. And I'm sure they were excited to get back in there and wanted it to kind of have some, some contribution to the direction. But yeah, setting I mean, it is one thing, right? Setting that path and the culture, assessing for it's totally different. I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard hiring people in any walk of life, in any industry. Um, and, and I do, I, you know, a little biased, but I do think that folks at work, uh, you know, particularly someone like you who has been on the player evaluation, you know, team side of the operations and now we're in the business side, you have a unique lens through which to, to assess people and, 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 and evaluate whether they're cultural fits and you can hire a resume. That's easy, but you have no clue whether that person fits, uh, sort of what you're, what you're looking for as, as a human being. And that, that the sweet spot for me is finding that, uh, seeking those people out, but then almost getting, getting them, uh, you know, assessing for whether they're buying into what you're saying, or they're just interviewing for a job because they want to work for the Vikings, irrespective of what your culture and your values are, right? That's, that's hard to sort of figure out. And it's a tough balance to strike. Yeah, we work in an industry that people are interested in working in. So it's not usually a lack of interest or a lack of resumes that, you know, come through. It's about, you know, selecting and what your process is for selecting the right people for those roles. And anytime you hire um, for almost any position, you're looking for, you know, functional expertise. Does the person have the background experiences, ability to perform the role? And then once you have that, then the question becomes, um, you know, what are the characteristics they, they bring uh, to the organization? And there, there's a, a set of characteristics that would probably make someone more likely to be successful in almost any role, any industry. And, and those are things like, you know, curiosity and adaptability and communication skills and selflessness, um, you know, hard work, dependability, you know, things that allow people to take in information. Uh, the world's always changing, right? We, we talked about COVID a little bit, right? That's, that's the extreme, right? But the world's changing outside of that and it's been changing and it will be changing and so for any of us to assume that we can just adhere to the status quo uh, without adapting is is not going to lead to to much success so you know we we need to look for people who are uh able to understand uh you know changes and, and adapt to them and frankly work and collaborate in in a team environment um you know, sports by definition uh, has tended to be a team environment, but you know the business world is is similar, and it's still team, uh, you know, centered. And um, you know, we we see people who have been uh, athletes, you know, at high levels, you know, either professionally or in college, uh, or, or different, you know, high levels of amateur sports. Uh, they tend to have a lot of uh, characteristics that make them successful in the business world as well. Yeah, no doubt. 
it's funny. We're sitting here talking a lot about sort of culture and the soft skills and things like that. And, you know, you're like the, um, you know, the prototypical Moneyball guy who came from venture capital investment banking before you got in baseball, right? So you walk in on day one with that sort of stamp on your forehead. Uh, but obviously you, you're passionate about the cultural side, the human element uh, side of, of life, not just, not just you know, sports and, and business. But have you always been, have you always gravitated toward that? Or is that something that, uh, you know, Cleveland helped shape in, in you? Because I know that's something that they prioritize as well. Yeah, I mean, Cleveland definitely helped shape that. And, you know, a lot of, you know, what I would attribute, you know, my leadership uh, philosophy style, you know, really starts from uh, a, a long tenure with, with Mark Shapiro, both in Cleveland and Toronto. Uh, absolutely incredible leader and mentor. Um, Chris Antonetti, you know, Mike Chernoff, Derek Falvey. I mean, their approach... Um, you know, in Cleveland, when I got there, you know, Mike, Chris and Mark was different. It was it was different than I had seen uh, from other teams I had been a part of other organizations. I, I was fortunate. I, I loved the jobs I had, you know, prior to grad school and worked with great people. Uh, they were thinking about things differently in terms of culture and leadership. Every single day we were thinking about how can we continue to improve our culture? How can we get better as an organization? Um, our mission in Toronto was get better every day. That was, that was the mission. And so it was a constant thought of how can we continue to improve and how can we uh, think about people and culture? And um, I think that has really, you know, helped, you know, shape, you know, how I think about organizations and culture and uh, what's really important. And, um, you know, a lot of that, starts with people and it starts with um, obsessing about hiring and developing people, developing culture uh, and empowering people. And, you know, the, the things that I learned from, you know, Mark over the years uh, really drove that. And, you know, his whole approach uh, is and, and was about obsessing about hiring talented people and then empowering them to do what they do well. And that leads to, you know, diversity. It leads to diversity of thought. Um, and it really, you know, is empowering to people uh, to have a voice in, in really important decisions that we made. Yeah, it's ironic that that um, you touched on Moneyball earlier. And, and for a while, it was sort of misconstrued as like, it's about on-base percentage and this and that. And it's, it's really, when you look at it from like through a business lens, it's about, you know, optimizing and leveraging underutilized assets, right? In one way, shape or form. And the ultimate irony is that, uh, you know, yourself, you know, fall into this category. There's other organizations that have really embraced this. The, the ultimate underutilized asset, and I don't like using that word, but it's, it's people. And, and having, uh, you know, Mark's philosophy about obsessing over hiring talented people and then developing them and empowering them, whether that's guys in uniform or, or in the office, the, the ripple effect of that and, and sort of the long-term that, I mean, that organization is a great example of it. You touched on a lot of the guys that have gone on to leadership roles in other organizations. Um, so sort of the, the, the cascading effect of that is, is hard to quantify, but it's hugely impactful. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you go back to, you know, the NFLPA survey we were talking about, right? The, the Wilfs as owners, it's a very similar philosophy, you know, obsess about hiring people and then empower them. You know, they're, they're not micromanaging. Uh, they're involved. They're engaged. They care. 
uh, and they want us to be a world-class organization in every facet. And it's, it's the same type of mentality of, uh, you know, a culture really uh, revolves around uh, the people that you have and uh, you know, the beliefs and the core values that you, you uphold. Yeah. And it, it's so hard to accomplish that without, you know, strong leadership at the top. Right. And, and obviously that starts with ownership in, in the sporting space. And uh, it's easy to focus on sort of the quantifiable results, but uh, sometimes, and I think it's human nature. Right? We, we overvalue what we can quantify. And I was always sort of obsessed with that on the human element side of it. You know, I, I didn't know enough about the human performance side personally. I didn't, you know, I had a degree in psychology, but I was far from, you know, qualified to, you know, be assessing people at that level. But it just felt like it was a huge opportunity. And you've gone on and you've seen organizations that, you know, people, again, people throw around culture and it's hard. Sometimes they, they hard to maybe define that. But um, we tend to focus on successful organizations and most of them have a pretty good culture, have pretty good leadership. Um, there are always exceptions here or there, but by and large, it's like it's it's there's different paths to get there, but everybody gets there that's going to, you know, have the success that we're all striving for. Yeah, I mean, culture is tested through adversity and whether that's an extremely challenging for the entire world, you know, a, a pandemic like COVID uh, or, you know, from a, a team standpoint in sports, you know, losing games. That's where really where you you, you know, test your culture and. Um, you know, strong cultures can bounce back and can overcome that adversity. Uh, and a lot of that starts with, um, you know, trusting relationships and respect uh, and, you know, people knowing that uh, everyone around them cares about uh, each other as, as people and wants to win. And when things, you know, turn negative and people start pointing fingers or people start, you know, focusing on themselves, Right. That's where cultures that aren't as strong uh, really don't overcome that adversity together. Yeah. You, you obviously have um, actually, as we're sitting here and talking, I thought of one other guy that, that, that has a similar profile to you making the leap from, from MLB to the NFL um, and Paul D Podesta. And so um, I'm curious, all the stuff we've talked about here is applicable to not just all of sports, but all of life as far as leadership and culture and things like that. But um were there some eye-opening moments for you when you made that leap to, to the NFL? Were there things that you were completely ignorant to or um, just sort of caught you off guard when you first got there? Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of people have asked me, you know, so I spent 14 seasons in, in baseball between Cleveland and Toronto. I just finished my fourth season in, in Minnesota with the Vikings. And um, it, it's sort of like, um, you know, speaking languages, right? If you speak Spanish fluently and then you see yeah, something in Italian or French, maybe it seems similar, but it's not the same language. Um, so there's a lot of terminology that seems similar and, you know, collective bargaining agreement and, you know, different rules and things that, you know, you sort of understand the mechanisms of them, but you don't understand, you know, the, the, the language of the terminology. From a business standpoint, um, it's probably a lot more similar. Um, than from a football versus baseball standpoint, um, you know, because you're, you're still in the business of selling tickets and sponsorships and suites and engaging people, you know, through your brand, um, you know, th there's differences. And, and you know, the most obvious one is, you know, pretty simple. It's, it's going to sound funny when I say it, but, you know, the number of games matters. And, you know, in baseball with 162 games uh, from a business standpoint, a lot of your focus is on ticket sales. 
because, you know, in Toronto, as an example, we had 4 million tickets to sell. We had 81 games times nearly 50,000 seats. 4 million tickets is a lot of tickets to sell. And so, um, you know, my first two years in Toronto, we led the American League in in attendance. That was 3.2, 3.4 million tickets sold. Well, that means that 20% of your building is empty. Uh, It's not as simple as 20% every day. I mean, roughly half of our games were sold out and half of our games by definition were lower demand because they weren't sold out. So your business challenge is how do you sell more tickets to the lower demand games without pulling you know fans away from the higher demand games, right? You're sort of optimizing across 162 games. You know, in the NFL, we have, including our preseason game or games, um, we have 10 games, 10 home games, and 67,000 seats. So we have 670,000 tickets to sell. It's a lot different equation, you know, for us that, um, you know, we're fortunate. We're in a sport that's really highly demanded, our, our, you know, very passionate fan base. Um, but, you know, we, we have a lot fewer tickets to sell. So that's not really the same kind of focus, you know, day in and day out as baseball was. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, there's the novelty for lack of a better term, uh, of football or something once a week. Right. I mean, that's why it's part of, in my opinion, what has made the NFL such a juggernaut is, uh, um, look, I'm a baseball traditionalist and I can sit there and watch a third and fourth place team in August, you know, and, and just enjoy it for three hours, but I'm, I'm in the minority, uh, you know, in the NFL, you've got one game a week. It's, there's a lot of bells and whistles and there's a lot of good things going on. And it's sort of, it's, it's a very different sell from the business perspective, obviously, than it is sitting there for 81, signing up for 81 home games and, and, and all of that entails. So, um, I was wondering if that's what you were going to say as simple as, as number of games. Cause that would have been my guess. Um, but it's, it's a huge difference. It's 10 times fewer games really when you think about it, 81 versus, you know, eight plus preseason, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, moving to the NFL has been fun. Um, you know, our, our fan base, you know, Vikings fans are, are truly passionate. U.S. Bank Stadium is, is one of the best stadiums in all of sports. And, uh, you know, the atmosphere in, in our stadium in U.S. Bank Stadium on Sunday afternoons is absolutely unreal. It's really unique. Um, you know, our internal team has done an incredible job of creating what, what we call showtime, you know, the 15 minutes leading into kickoff and the skull chant and the Galler horn. And it, I it's, love the horn, man. The yeah, horn's amazing. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, every Sunday uh, in our stadium is uh, a full out production. And, you know, the only thing that, that I've seen equivalent is, um, you know, in Toronto, we had all the big. Uh, you know, concerts come through and U2 and Metallica and Taylor Swift and Guns N' Roses and Coldplay and Beyonce. And every Sunday is like a U2 concert. It, it's <laughs> absolutely unreal. And it's, it's a lot of fun. That's incredible. Um, what, what's been the biggest, um, the thing you've leaned on the most over, over the transition from baseball to football when you came in um, in a new role in a, in, a, in a, obviously a very impactful leadership role in a new organization, in a new sport, in a new town? Um, what was your priority on day one? What did you want to sort of hang your hat on? Yeah, I mean, I was fortunate because I went through a similar transition from Cleveland to Toronto and sort of coming into a new role, new organization, in that case, new country, new city, you know, the only team in Major League Baseball that represents an entire country. And uh, so coming into Minnesota, um, I had some experience having done it once. And um, the goal was to, to start out by meeting people. 
I had roughly 50 one-on-one meetings uh, in my first month, you know, went to the cafeteria here and sat with a different group of people every single day and tried to get to know as many people as possible and not, you know, what's your resume and what projects are you working on, but, you know, tell me about where you're from and your family and your background and, you know, what you love doing and um, just trying to understand the, the fabric of what has made this organization great over 60 plus years and what makes this community tick. And um, if I had walked in um, to a new organization, Toronto or Minnesota, and said, I got the answer, here's the playbook, let's go run it, um, that's not going to work um, because each of those markets are different, each of the teams are different, each of the histories are different, each of the communities are different, uh, each of the fan bases are different. Um, and so for me, I, I need to walk in as this is a learning opportunity for me, you know, instead of me in some way trying to impose, you know, my will or something on uh, this organization. The idea is for me to to learn and to try and understand uh, where the opportunities are and what uh, has made uh, the culture uh, great and what has made this place historically great and, and how to build off of that. Yeah, actually, as you're sitting here talking, I'm, I, I don't know if you'll have the perspective on this that that you may have had in other roles, but you know, I don't know folks. Too many folks who have worked in both sports, and one thing coming from the um, the player operations side of of the house that I've always been envious of when it comes to team building of football is the the concept of building uh, a roster around your system, right? And so there are some organizations that have been very very successful over the years doing that. Um, and others have struggled to find the, the right players for their system, or maybe they just have the wrong system. I know you're not involved in, in sort of the on-field product um, in Minnesota, but have you noticed that? Have you have, Has that jumped out at you at all as far as the, the difference in team building and approach? Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not nearly as involved um, you know, on the football side of things, but it, it is a difference that uh, I had to sort of learn in, in that language you know, difference, you know, in terms of scheme and, and preparation. And uh, I, I've gotten a great appreciation for it because it is very different. Um, you know, baseball is very uh, pitcher, you know, hitter, one-on-one matchup and football is very 11 on 11 uh, matchup. And, you know, it's complex. And so uh, a lot goes into the game planning and uh, the schemes and how players fit those schemes. And again, I'm probably, that's probably about the extent of even uh, my, my expertise in talking about it, but sure. it, it is very different and it's very fun to see. Yeah. I mean, look, there's parallels there between what you were just talking about coming into uh, the role that you're in right? and, and, and team building and building around strengths and figuring out who is on your team, you know, the human beings that you're dealing with. And that's, uh, that human element is is um, it's kind of like the first thing that some people sort of forsake because they're so focused on the tactical side of things and uh, whether it's roster building or executing whatever initiative they're focused on. But I know it's something that you focus on in, in your leadership style. And, um, you know, I read recently that you sort of came out and talked about struggles that you've had um, with depression in the past and that, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit sort of about what that what that experience was like for you, because I feel like the, it, it starts with, for me, it starts with humility when it comes to leadership and that, that vulnerability that, yeah, you know what, I've, I've got my problems true too. And, and, you know, it, it, it immediately sort of diffuses any imaginary uh, schism or wall that may exist between you and sort of your organization by saying, yeah, look, Andrew's dealing with stuff just like we all are. Yeah. I, I think empathy and vulnerability is really important for a leader 
Um, it's not something in any way that I had planned for. There wasn't some grand scheme or strategy of, you know, now is when I'm going to disclose that I've had mental right. health challenges. Hit the empathy button. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and make people feel related to me. But, um, <laughs> you know, when, when COVID hit, we, we were all struggling, right? Yeah. And none of us had ever experienced anything like that in our lifetimes. Hopefully we'll never experience anything again like that in our lifetimes. But, you know, those first few weeks especially um, was, you know, really challenging. You know, everyone, um, you know, was struggling to figure out what it meant and what, what was going to happen and uh, had concerns, anxieties about uh, family members and health and uh, jobs and a lot of other things. And to make matters worse, uh, you know, everyone was isolated, you know, the, the, um, focus was on, you know, being, um, uh, distant from each other. And that's not as normal in our society. And as humans, we, we, you know, crave that, uh, you know, interaction with, with other people. And so people were really, uh, put in a place that was different and you know, challenged in many, many different ways, um, with, with how to proceed. And, um, you know, we have monthly all staff meetings and, um, you know, we moved very quickly to monthly remote all staff meetings on, on teams and, and zoom. But, um, you know, people were telling me that, uh, we're having quite a bit of, uh, you know, challenge with, with staff members and, and mental health and, you know, people are, uh, disclosing that they're struggling and, um, you know, having a tough time. And, um, so, you know, I, I was told coming into our, our April of 2020 staff meeting, um, you know, hey, just just so you you know, this is something that's really uh, you know critical for for you to reference in some way that you understand that people are struggling, and um, and to remind people of the mental health resources we have because it is something that we prioritize as an organization. We have you know resources available to uh, players, coaches, staff members. Everybody has access to mental health resources. And so I, I was just given, you know, the, the advice of, Hey, just make sure you mention it and make sure you reference our, um, our resources. And, you know, as I was thinking about the best way to do that and the best way to tell people that not only I cared, but that I understood, um, was to, to tell people I've gone through depression. And, um, I, I literally didn't know as I, you know, kind of got on that, that call, whether I was really going to do that or not. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't go into great detail. I just told people, I said, Hey, I understand. Uh, I understand that people are struggling. I, I can't really put myself in your shoes as to what those struggles are right now. But, um, you know, you need to know that, that I've had mental health challenges in the past. I, I've suffered from depression throughout most of my life and, uh, it's come and gone and, you know, it's been really challenging at times. And, um, I understand that, you know, it's important to, to get the help that you need. And, um, that was from my recollection, that was about all, all that I said. And, um, you know, a lot of people came forward and, and thanked me for that. And, uh, a whole other group of people just told me that they were struggling with, uh, similar things or, or told me about their mental health struggles. And, you know, since then, um, you know, we, as an organization, uh, Lindsay Young, you know, one of our writers within uh, VEN Vikings entertainment network, uh, she created a series called getting open, uh, which was uh, intended on uh, breaking the stigma of mental health and doing interviews with players and coaches and you know Vikings alumni and other uh, you know Vikings uh, you know community members uh, in their uh, relationship with mental health, either their struggles or, or struggles of uh, you know family members and 
Um, you know, so I, I got uh, interviewed for that and, and talked about, uh, you know, my mental health challenges in, in more detail. So um, I think it's really important, you know, that uh, it's something that as leaders, um, empathy, vulnerability, like we said, is, is really important. Um, in this way, I could, you know, tell people that uh, I may not have had exactly what they're going through, but I've, I've had similar types of challenges in my life. And um, it's okay to tell other people. It's okay to, to not feel okay. It's not, it's okay to not be all right. And uh, to go get the help that you need. Yeah. Yeah. When, when COVID first hit and, and the world got flipped upside down and, you know, kind of stood still at the same time. Um, one thought I, I, I started ruminating on was, was kind of what you're touching on there. The, the fact that um, there are people that, you know, people in leadership positions who pre COVID could sort of get by on just like the sheer force of their personality or the, the, the sort of the kinetic energy of, of the beehive of the office and, and people feed off that myself included. Um, and, and when COVID hit and you go from, your all staff meeting in person to your all staff meeting on zoom. Uh, it's a very different dynamic. You can't create that human connection. And, um, one thought that I had, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on it was that it forced leaders. It probably, you know, um, vetted some folks out of leadership roles, I would imagine, but it also, uh, it forced some people to, uh, be much more intentional about their, their leadership. Um, you know, you no longer had the, the, the luxury of popping into my office and just hanging out for 15 minutes and having a cup of coffee and building rapport and getting a little bit of work done and, and what have you, you had to, you know, set a 30 minute window for me to sit down at my computer and have a virtual meeting with you. It's very, very different. It's a very different challenge as a leader. What was that like for you? What approach uh, did you take? That, that was a challenge as a leader because when, when you're in an office, um, a lot of the, the time you can have, um, informal interactions. You can walk down a hall and run into somebody. You can see someone in the cafeteria, um, you know, getting coffee or, or something else. It's really informal, right? I can check in with you, ask you how you're doing, you know, see what's going on in some project. And it doesn't have to be an intentional appointment that we set. And as you said, on, on Zoom or Teams, it was, and that made it really hard, right? Because uh, I, I might uh, not necessarily, you know, plan to reach out to you in that moment. And hey, if you see my name coming up on Zoom, you know, maybe it's different than if we just kind of see each other in the hallway and say hello. And so right. th that made it really challenging to try and have other ways to connect to people. You know, we did some uh, informal coffee chats where we just paired people up and did, you know, a 15 minute, you know, get together or, or other types of things. But it did make it really hard as a leader. And um, I think the other thing to maybe pivot a little bit is, um, you know, leadership, a lot of it's about being authentic and, um, you know, whether it's you know, the, the mental health example or, or this example with uh, remote versus in-person leadership, uh, I'm pretty introverted. And I, I've learned that um, about myself over the years. And um, I, I literally used to have to put on my calendar, go walk the second floor in Cleveland uh, because I, I'd sit in my office all day and, you know, be fine behind a spreadsheet and emails. And I, I knew that as a leader, I, I need to be, you know, out walking around and connecting with people and building those relationships and having the informal interactions. And I needed to schedule time for it. And um, so as, as an introvert, I, I'm not going to gravitate towards 
uh, you know, big groups and I do it and, and I do it uh, as part of my job, but it's not sort of the natural setting for me. And so as a leader, uh, you know, self-awareness is important. Authenticity is important. I have to be who I am and, and lead in my style. And I've been really fortunate. I've been around some absolutely incredible world-class leaders. Um, you know, a lot of the names that, you know, we've already mentioned, uh, Kevin Warren, you know, who was here as chief operating officer uh, before me, and, and we've had a good relationship since then. Um, Kevin's very different than me. He's larger than life. He's charismatic. He's outgoing. Um, you know, when I got here, people said, hey, don't try and be Kevin. And I said, I'm not. You know, I, I know that, you know, just even in a short instance of getting to know him, He's an absolutely incredible leader who I'm going to try and learn from and incorporate, you know, his strengths, but I can't be him. And if I try and be him, then people are going to see right through that. And it's not going to work out well for me. Um, same with Mark Shapiro, right? Mark's an incredible leader. Uh, and he's got a different style than me. And I need to learn from that and take that and, and you know, make it my own and, and be my own leader. Yeah, we try to... Uh it's an easy trap to fall into where you, you are around great leaders. And so you try to mimic them. You try to do what they do. Right. And it's, it comes off as inauthentic immediately. People sniff through it right away. Um, so I, I totally agree. I mean, it's one of the first words I talk about when we, when we discuss leadership is authenticity, but what you touched on that authenticity and the self-awareness of I'm an introvert. That's not my style but I know I need to put myself out there to the point where I'm going to, and it's so counter nature to what I would normally do that I'm going to schedule time on my calendar to go force myself to walk the second hall. That's, um, you know, that that's a pretty unique combination. I think of, of sort of humility, authenticity, but also like pushing yourself outside your comfort zone because you know, you need to, because you know that you need to sort of have that tool in your tool belt, even if it's not, you know, your go-to. Yeah. I mean, pushing yourself outside your comfort zone is really where we all learn and grow, right? That is uh, growth mindset. And um, that's something that as I look back in, in my career, you know, we started this conversation, you asked me about my move from baseball ops to, to business ops. When I look back on that decision, you know, the decision to uh, go to Toronto instead of staying in Cleveland, the decision to come here um, and move into football, I think every one of those decisions, the common thread was it was outside my comfort zone. And, um, you know, I knew the decision to go to Toronto. That was as far outside my comfort zone as it could be. Just, you know, new new country, new city, uh, all those things. But it was also growth. I was overseeing a team of uh, five people or so, and I was moving to overseeing the entire business side, which is about 200 staff members. And um, that's a huge growth from a leadership perspective. And way, way outside my comfort zone. Um, you know, same thing coming here and moving to the NFL and moving to a totally new sport and industry, uh, a new market again. And so when I look back on those decisions, they were not easy decisions and I agonized over them at the time. But I think the common thread of being outside my comfort zone and, and having a great learning opportunity in the process, uh, really, I, I wouldn't go back and change any of them. Yeah, I think if, generally speaking, if you embrace that philosophy in life, you're probably going to look back and be happy, um, you know, in your in your twilight years, you're probably not going to regret taking opportunities like that and taking chances. And even if you fail, right, even if, if it doesn't work out, if you if you push yourself too far, um, you know, the benefit there is now I know what my limit is, I know what I can't do. So <laughs> there's there's value there, too. 
Andrew, look, I know you are a busy man, so I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it was really good to catch up. Um, I'm going to have to get up there and blow the Viking horn or something at some point. That thing's awesome. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> It'd be awesome to show you around U.S. Bank Stadium. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks again for taking the time and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. All right. Thanks, Billy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the No One Is Watching podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe to be notified of future episodes. If you'd like to support the show, please take a second, leave a rating and review, or share it with your friends. If you're interested in similar content, you can check out my website at nooneiswatching.com, where you can subscribe to the newsletter, read my blog, or follow me on your social media platform of choice. Look, your time is valuable, so thank you for lending me some of it. We'll see you next time.